0: From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today on the program, we'll be joined by two researchers from very different fields to talk about a really old crab and a really new way of measuring carbon in the atmosphere. And then we're going to introduce them to one another and see what happens. It's a paleontologist and the atmospheric scientist. That's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. For more than a year now, we've been bringing together researchers from different disciplines in our never-ending search to build interdisciplinary connections. That's two scientists each week for more than 52 weeks. That's a lot of researchers who are doing a lot of really fascinating work. We've had psychologists, geneticists, hydrologists, anthropologists, but we haven't had a paleontologist on our program yet. And that's kind of crazy because as the host of this show, I have a bit of say in these things, and paleontology has always been one of my favorite scientific fields. So today, that's going to change. Joining us from Yale is Javier Luque, a postdoc in the Department of Geology and Geophysics at Yale University, and the leader of an international team of researchers that just announced the discovery of hundreds of species for more than 90 million years ago, including an entirely new kind of crab. Javier, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined.
1: Hi, Matthew. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to join you guys.
0: Also joining us here in studio is Brett Raska, a research assistant professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Utah. He is part of a team of scientists that has developed a new way of using satellites to track the ways in which forests are responding to climate change. Brett, I'm glad you could join us.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: We're going to begin today a long, long time ago. You're listening to a dance track by the Canadian DJ known as 747. The song is called Cretaceous, and that's the geologic period we're gonna be talking about today. And that's because the mid-Cretaceous is the source of hundreds of fossils recently discovered and described in a new study. That report in the journal Science Advances describes a new, exceptionally well-preserved, and very weird crab that might force scientists to rethink the very definition of what a crab is. Javier Luque, let's start by talking about this crab, Calichimera perplexa. Did I get it right? Yes. Hey, fantastic. So this thing is really funny looking. Can you describe it for us?
1: Yeah. uh, So if you think of a typical crab today, they tend to be broad in carapace. They tend to have normal legs or full pairs of normal legs for walking, uh, strong claws in front of them, and the tail tucked under the carapace, and the eyes are standing on little eye stalks, and they have eye sockets. Chimera, on the other hand, is completely unlike any other crab we have ever seen, fossil or alive. And it looks very particular in which its body is more like a fuselage. It's elongated, like a spindle, rather than the robust, small carapace. The front legs are flattened like paddles, unlike any other crabs today. And the huge eyes are popping out of the carapace, and they have no eye sockets whatsoever. So these huge eyes were exposed at all time. And the tail is not bent under the carapace or tucked underneath, but actually is curled backwards and that is completely unlike most crabs we see today.
0: So what did you think the first time you saw this thing? Because it does look so different than the crabs you've seen before. When you first looked at it in its fossil form, what struck you about
1: it? That was a big shock because the first specimen I found back in 2005, it looked more like a spider, especially because of those long legs and the long body instead of the roundish, more crabby looking animal. And it was surprising. You know, there are fossil spiders in the world, sure, but this one was the first one for Colombia, North and South America. But the more I look at these weird animals, the more I realize, hey, it has segments. Oh, wow, okay, it has four pairs of legs and a pair of claws. Oh, wait a second, it has huge eyes. And then I realize, okay, this is a crab. But it took us a long time with a group of world experts on crabs to understand that this animal was unlike anything we have seen, and we actually were dealing with an entirely new branch in the tree of life. And that's why the chimera perplexa names come from its baffling affinities we were puzzling for a long time.
0: One of the really weird things about this crab is that it appears to have retained a lot of its larval traits well into adulthood. And that's not necessarily abnormal in the animal world. There are other animals that exhibit neoteny, but it's unusual for crabs, right?
1: Yeah, um, it's unusual for crabs overall, but it's not unusual for arthropods or animals. So that's one of the fascinating things of how can you evolve such a unique body form that is looking like a larval state. So there are many mechanisms and many ways that can happen. And through development at some point, we think it would have favored the Kali Chimera to retain certain traits that were present in the larva, such as the mouth parts that are more like, like little legs with spines inside, the big eyes, bulky eyes with no orbits or eye sockets whatsoever, but also the spindle-like body and potential capacity for swimming.
0: Let's talk about those eyes for a second, because that's the trait that first jumps out to me. There's these huge, bulging, kind of marble-looking eyes. Why do you think they evolved in that way? Because it seems to me like most crabs' eyes are pretty well protected. These are
1: just out there. It means whatever the chimera was doing for living, it must have used its eyes actively because uh, being exposed by all, all the time, it means they are more susceptible to damage. And actually, they are so conspicuous that chances are they would have been a very evident part of the animal when a predator was approaching it or something. So, whatever this animal was doing for a living, it must have used its eyes actively. We think it could have been an active predator, or could have a nocturnal or dim light a habitat.
0: Now, you've noted that like retaining these uh, states from juvenile crab, the way that it does this might help explain one of the ways in which novel life forms evolve. We often think about evolution as something that happens when mutations allow for new features to appear that make a life form more competitive in its adult form. But in this case, the features were all there all along in the juvenile form, but they're amplified and they're retained by the forces of evolution, right?
1: Exactly. That, that word is key over there, amplified. So many traits that are already present at different growth stages can be retained, it can be exaggerated in different ways if that uh, poses any advantage at some point. We think many of these characters that are so atypical are traits that were present in a larval form that were retained into adults. So many of these traits might have actually not just retained, but exacerbated, amplified into the final mosaic of features that describe this chimera. Um, the question is, what were those features used for? Because this
0: crab is so very different from others, but also, as you explained, by using the features that it shares with other crabs and talking to crab experts who said, yes, this thing is definitely a crab, You've suggested that it may have broken away from other crab families in the early Jurassic period. That's about 200 million years ago. And this actually, in order to make this all work, we, you, had to create an entirely new branch on this tree of life, right?
1: Yeah. So in a way, what, what we do as paleontologists is like being a detective of the past. Imagine of a CSI and you have a crime scene, but instead of a crime scene, you have a snapshot of the distant past written in the rocks. And we have to read the, the clues and make sense of them and come with explanations. So in the case of the fossil, because of its exquisite preservation and the degree of completeness, we had already an edge. Because it was so well preserved and complete, we can compare it with any other fossil crab and any extant or living group of crabs, which give us a more solid idea of where this animal is in the big tree of life. The more we compare it with other organisms, the less we understood where it fit in the big picture. And that's why we as paleontologists and and biologists also perform something called phylogenetic analysis, which pretty much means uh, try to infer numerically how likely is an animal or an organism to relate with others. And we found that the chimera actually fits well within the definition of crab, although it challenges the conventional definition. So it forces us to rethink how we think about what makes a crab a crab.
0: That's Javier Luque. His team's recent description of a novel crab from the Cretaceous period was recently published in the journal Science Advances. Javier, can you stick online for a while and listen in while I chat with our next guest?
1: Most definitely.
0: That's the English rock band Arctic Monkeys' most popular song, a rock ballad about the power of nostalgia and what it's like to try to emit the glow of youth later in life. That song is called Fluorescent Adolescent, and it's a good way to remember what fluorescence is. In a scientific sense, it is the emission of light by a substance that has absorbed light. You probably know that some microorganisms are fluorescent, as are some fish and amphibians, but did you know that trees, all of them, are also very, Subtly fluorescent. Well, that characteristic is giving us a new way to measure forest growth. Brett Raska, you and I can't really see forests glowing, but they do. Can we start by talking a little bit about what solar-induced chlorophyll fluorescence is?
2: Yeah, sure, Matthew. So, When any tree or plant, for that matter, is photosynthesizing, it actually is emitting fluorescence, which is invisible to the naked eye. And that's because it comes out in the far infrared part of the spectrum. So that's invisible to us. But we can measure that with uh, specialized instruments called spectrometers. And we could use that to determine the magnitude of photosynthesis or the timing. So the onset of spring for, for this winter or for the spring, for that matter.
0: We can do this now via satellite.
2: Yes, that's right. So we, we, in our paper, we are actually looking at from, from an instrument that's mounted on top of a, a flux tower. But in addition, in the paper, we are looking at other satellite instruments that were actually intended to measure other things like atmospheric gases like CO2. But they are sensitive to that part of the spectrum. We can sense that over large regions. And so we're not limited to a single site. We could see this over continents, which is, which is really exciting. And,
0: and that's really good uh, when it comes to understanding the way that forests grow. And for, for decades now, scientists have been using satellites to monitor the changes in greenness of deciduous trees. That's a pretty good way for us to understand how much carbon dioxide these forests are breathing in. That's all well and good when it comes to deciduous forests, but there's a problem when it comes to evergreens, right?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. So if you're more familiar, if you're from the East Coast like I am and you're more familiar with deciduous forests, that's oaks and maples, you say, why is it so hard to detect spring? It's just when the leaves come out and they immediately start photosynthesizing. Well, for evergreens like fir and spruces, this is a little bit more subtle. It's a little bit harder to, to figure this out. And if you went up to the Wasatch right now, it's spring, but it seems like the middle of winter, so it's hard to tell. And so the sift the spectrum, of this fluorescence, actually is an indication when the, the tree has actually started to photosynthesize. So the start of it is the beginning of the phenological season for, for the spruces. And at the end of the season towards winter, where it starts to get cold, we could also detect the end as well. So this feels
0: like a pretty clever solution. How did your team realize it was possible to do this monitoring?
2: We certainly can't take all the credit. It's been known for decades um, by plant physiologists that plants do emit fluorescence. And so there's been a lot of leaf level studies that have used a chamber measurements, which actually give a pulse of light to leaves and then measure the fluorescence response what the, the big advance has been in the last five years or so is that we've been able to use satellite measurements and actually focus in on this, this infrared part of the spectrum to look at this at large, large regions and scale up this from the leaf to the needle up into to large regions is, is the value here
0: but just knowing that the trees emit fluorescence and that it could be tracked by satellites that's not enough either there is still the matter of the math and the modeling and that that's kind of your side of the business
2: right yeah so so i work with land surface models which represents what the land surface is doing so you know how the plants grow where the carbon is going how that interacts with the water as well and so it actually is a piece of a climate model, um, they all interact together. Part of the ocean, part of the atmosphere, the cryosphere or the ice, and it interacts with the land surface. And all these pieces together um, are what we call a climate model or an Earth system model. As a modeller, you just don't want to be out there in model world and not know how it behaves and how it performs. And so, anytime we can get an observation such as solar induced fluorescence, we can to diagnose the behavior of the forest uh, when it starts to photosynthesize. Or perhaps it's under a lot of drought stress at the time and it stops to photosynthesize. SIF uh, is really exciting because it may be a really good indicator of when these phenomena are occurring. When you're a
0: modeler and, and you've started to put together the, the science that make these models work and they start to work better and better and you see that the model does work that you've created,
2: it has got to be a really cool experience, right? It is. It's, it's, it's a work in progress <laughs> as well. The models, because you can't, the, the earth is really s- super complicated. So we're looking to get a representation. If you tried to get all the details, these models would be impossible to run. But right now, the challenge is to understand more about the mechanisms of, of CIF and use that and represent that in the model to help leverage those observations of CIF.
0: So now that we're getting this increasingly good way to see carbon intake, this can potentially help us understand climate change a little bit more, right?
2: Yeah. So depending upon what the limitation is for the onset of spring, so for high elevation, a cold climate conifer force, temperature is really the limiting factor for, for the onset of when photosynthesis occurs. So at a very simple level, if we have a gradual warming, you might expect for the growing season to be longer and all else being equal, that will uptake more carbon and help to mitigate climate change. So it's pulling more of that CO2 out of the atmosphere and sequestering it into the land. And that's really a safer place to be. It's a safer place for it to be in biomass than it is to be in the atmosphere or in the oceans, let's say.
0: That's Brent Raska. His team's paper on using fluorescent forest glow to track the seasonality of photosynthesis was recently published in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Science. Hey, Brett, there's somebody I want to introduce you to. Sound good? Sounds perfect. All right, so now let me make an introduction. Brett, this is paleontologist Javier Luque, and Javier, this is atmospheric scientist Brett Raska. Hey, Javier, how's it going?
1: Hi, Brett, good, how are you?
0: Excellent. Hey, guys, the thing that came across to me in both of my conversations with you is is that your recent discoveries came about because your research team started looking in places others, well, well, they hadn't. Either they hadn't thought to or they hadn't been able to before. Uh, Javier, for instance, like you guys were looking for fossils in places where people don't generally think there are fossils. And and Brett, you guys were looking for correlations that people hadn't had the ability to do so before because the technology hadn't, caught up to us, how do you guys develop the skills it takes to always be kind of crafting the kind of questions that exist on, on this little edge of where our knowledge is and where it could be, given that we're developing new knowledge all the time?
2: One of the things I could relate to, Javier, is where you were saying that a lot of the, the fossil records are probably undersampled in the tropical regions. And that's the same issue we have to deal with when looking at carbon sequestration or the functioning of plants and ecosystems is that areas close to infrastructure, close to cities and towns are generally heavily sampled in the Northern hemisphere, North America and Europe. But where a lot of the carbon uptake occurs in my field, of course, the tropical rainforests near Brazil, we don't have as as good sampling there. And so that's one of the advantages of satellite measurements is that you get that spatial sampling that you really couldn't get at a certain, certain location. So I was just wondering, is the tropics in general an undersampled area for fossils?
1: That's a great observation, and the answer is yes. Like in your case and, and the, the kind of work you're doing, when it comes to paleontology in the tropics, we are behind uh, most of the paleontology done in other parts of the world. And part of it is because of an asymmetry of land masses. So North America and Eurasia are bigger land masses than is the tropics. So there is more area to look for fossils. But also in the high latitudes we have more rock exposure because of the less vegetation cover. And we have less development of soils. And all of those factors that are permanent in the tropical settings affect much our access to the fossil data. So we have strong vegetation coverage and uh, rock destruction by weathering and exposure to the atmospheric agents. But we also have little people looking for fossils in the tropics. And that is changing, fortunately. Now we're shifting. We're uh, we're reaching the critical mass of researchers working in the tropics. But also one of the limitants is the funding and the availability to carry on those research. I'm optimistic that we are in a new era of discoveries. And based on the curiosity uh, of challenging previous assumptions and asking new questions, we might move forward in our fields.
0: Javi, you were listening in as I was chatting with Brett. What struck you about his research that you wanted to ask about?
1: Well, it's fascinating to see the approaches they are taking to examining questions that we already have in terms of carbon sequestration and the forest dynamics and their growth. Uh, I would be interested to hear about uh, how you extrapolate some of your data or even the tools you use into understanding similar questions, but in the fossil record.
2: I do know there's some paleoecology that goes on as far as identifying disturbance in the past so like like charcoal records or fossils of pollen and these have been used in the past in ecology to try to to figure out what the domain or what the the regions of types of species and fauna are over different climate regimes. It's so a little bit out of my expertise, but as far as like the paleo records, we try to leverage that in terms of, you know, fire history, like, like charcoal records, and then pollen from the fossil records.
0: Can we assume that plants have been doing this sort of fluorescent trick throughout their history? I mean, do we know, and I know, I know that comes a little out of your area of the study as well, but do we know kind of the evolutionary history of the fluorescent glow?
2: Yeah, so it's a little bit out of my expertise, but as far as we know, I mean, there's, there's two major types of, of plant species. We refer to them as the C3 and the C4 species. Most of the trees are, are C3 species. And grasses, a lot of the grasses and uh, crop types are C4, and they have different photosynthetic processes. But as far as we know, this measurement of fluorescence seems to be a universal, almost linear relationship between the two. The, the slope of that linear relationship may be different. That's one of the nice things is that whenever you find some functionality or some measurement which is, which is universal, it makes that easier to understand what's going on. And of course, there is evolution of these C3 and C4 species back in time, but I couldn't speak to the, to the details of how that might manifest as far as fluorescence.
0: So, uh, Javier, so if, if we know that like all trees today do something, that we can kind of extrapolate backwards from that, right? And understand that if all the trees are doing this kind of similarly now, they must have been doing that at some time in the past. When you think about the past as a paleontologist, you pretty much have to work from what exists now. That's exactly what you do with the crabs, right?
1: Indeed. That's a great observation, and that's exactly how we all work. So fortunately, the group of study I deal with, like lobster, shrimp, and crabs, and relatives, they are living today. So even if several of the groups we find in the fossil record are long time gone, we can still use... Information provided by the living ones to extrapolate and have that hint about how modern processes operate and how likely they would have operated in the past. So there is a a famous quotation that is uh, the present is the key to the past. But I would say vice versa, the past is also the key to the present because as many organisms are undergoing extreme uh, pressures and bring to, to the brink of extinction today, many animals and uh, plants as well that were diverse in the past found their demise at some point. so why is that some of the most successful organisms vanish suddenly and how others actually can uh, rebound and recover from that? And what are the dynamics? What can we learn? on the fossil record to understand
0: the origins of modern diversity. Javier, you mentioned earlier the challenges that you face in continuing this research because of funding issues and getting people to understand that the tropics are a good place to look for fossils. And I know, Brett, we were talking earlier about your job is dependent on soft money. So you're you're constantly out there looking for grants and trying to promote your research. One of the things I've also noticed about both of you guys as I've been chatting with you is you can share your story really well, which, which is really important. And I'm wondering, like, how important that is for you when you're doing something that might on the surface seem a little esoteric. How do you put that through the funnel of, of a story that really helps perpetuate the research further?
2: In terms of my research, because of the link to climate, it doesn't seem like anybody has a lack of opinion on climate. It just depends on where they're getting their resources from. So I, I feel I could provide you know, relatives and family with kind of a, an unbiased account of what's going on. In the big picture really here, as far as like forests and carbon uptake, they're really a value added. Tropical forests in the Northern Hemisphere, they're doing us a service essentially in bringing carbon out of the atmosphere. So the rate of climate change is slowing down. And so when I talk to people about that, I I take it from that approach. And that seems, it seems to, to resonate really well. And so the health of the forest going forward will really have large implications for the rate of warming that we're going to see in the future. And that's just not like a Utah thing. That's a global issue that we should be worried about.
1: And findings or research can be tricky because we have to assume that the people have a minimum understanding of the topic, but they don't know the details. So translating that into layman language is is challenging, but highly rewarding because... There is no better way to explain something that when you have gone through it with people that are not aware of the topic. If we succeed at communicating our histories, our stories, we may make a deeper indentation in the way people perceive science and as you said remove the esoteric coding on that because actually everyday science, we live science, we breathe science is around us. Is the curiosity about Uh, formulating a question, about making an observation and finding ways to answer it. And that is beyond uh, the topic we work at. That's how we operate in life. We are surrounded by a completely dynamic biosphere and atmosphere, and we have to relate to that. And no better way to do it by telling this story as you wanted someone to tell it to you.
0: We are just about out of time. Javier Luque, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Thanks for having me, guys. It was a pleasure to meet you all. And, Brett Raska, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at so undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.